on 89.9 The Light. You're in conversation with Clayton and a man that I absolutely love chatting to. He is the author of a new book, The Guilt Busters. Graham Can joins me via Zoom. G'day, Graham. G'day, Clayton. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. And it is just uh, wonderful to have you back on. Uh, we talked to you about a year and a half ago or so at the, the launch of uh, your book there. And now you've got another one out. You've been busy writing. Yes, it's been um, a good time with lockdown to uh, to uh, discipline myself to uh, get into the office every day. And so, yeah, it's all happened. Yes. Now, Graeme, uh, for those who may not know you, you've had a long um, career uh, in ministry as a pastor, as a speaker, as a counsellor, as a host of other things I'm probably missing as well. And you've done that over many, many decades uh, throughout many various areas and churches around Melbourne. Uh, it's always been a, a real heart of yours, hasn't it, to uh, be helping other people and uh, not just helping them with words from the front of a pulpit, but actually um, getting in there with people. Is that a fair summary of, of the way you, you want to do your ministry? It, yes, it is. I, I came into ministry out of a, a very wounded uh, journey. And I think my heart has always just been to, uh, to uh, convey the love of Christ and the grace of God to people's lives. And so both Julia and I, my wife and I, have been quite deeply involved in counselling. In fact, uh, Clayton, uh, it's 60 years uh, this year since I went to my first pastorate and uh, out in country Victoria, and um, we've been at it ever since. Mm. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk just briefly uh, about uh, some of that wounding that you talked through, um, because it does form some of the basis of why you've written this book, The Guilt Busters, as well. We, we're not going to spend too much time on it, but could you share a little bit of of, uh, of that that very difficult time for you, and then we'll explain why this book is so important. My experience, Clayton, was at the age of uh, seven, uh, six or seven, I'm not, not quite sure, but uh, I was one of those many thousands of boys and girls who were uh, sexually, institutionally sexually abused, and um, whilst, the, uh, whilst the actual... Uh, um, details of the event are not easy to recall. What, what really impacts us is that deep feeling of shame and guilt that we carry uh, after the abuse because there's two aspects of sexual abuse. One is the event itself. The, the other is the, the, uh, the projection by the per perpetrator of the guilt and the shame of the event so that you come out of it believing that this happened because you're a bad boy or because you caused it. So, so that's been the woundedness. And because I know that, and because as a counselor, I've counseled um, hundreds and hundreds of people who have been through the same journey. And I've heard that story. I just felt there was a need to write a book that, that focused on dealing with projected or, or uh, unreal guilt, and uh, it's an irrational guilt, uh, but it it's it's powerful, and it it has destroyed many many lives, destroys relationships, uh, destroys hope, destroys um, innocence in relation to sexuality. But then it it just continues to drive confusion in that way. So it was really important. I, I felt that. Um, 
I, I write something that is going to focus particularly on that. Yeah. Um, before we talk more about the guilt busters, we, and we did talk, a, you know, a year or so ago as well about uh, your previous book, which dealt with, and we talked a bit about shame, and we talked about forgiveness, and we talked about the the steps of of those various things, and the way to to look at some of those. And certainly, you can uh, check out that interview online right now at thelight.com.au as well. It, it's still up there for you to to listen to. Um, Graham, was it something that as you you stepped into the work of being involved in counselling and church work and these sorts of things that um, for you, it was always focused around wanting to ensure that you, you were able to talk about this sort of thing and that sort of idea of working with people who had perhaps been sexually abused. Was that something that you actually put aside for a little while and have come back to it more recently? Um, I know I've, I hear stories of people who have been abused and, and there's different ways for, for each person. Well, as I said to you, I, I entered ministry at 20 and at that time, uh, I had n- not dealt with my guilt and shame, and I, I dealt with it by internalising it, which is is what most survivors do. So there was a period of uh, about, uh, oh, let me think, about 18 years, uh, yes, 18 years um, of ministry and marriage where I never spoke about it even to, to my wife. And... Um, Whilst I am sure it impacted me both positively and negatively, there was no engagement with it. And then, in uh, then, at the age of thirty-eight, I had the opportunity of going to America and uh, studying at the Narrowmore Foundation. My wife and I were both there, and it was during that time that I received counselling, and uh, and uh, it changed my life. Um, so from then on, from, uh, from uh, that experience on, I have just felt that this is what God needs me to do. So, so in my preaching and teaching and, uh, and uh, in my counselling, that's been a focus all the time. But I've been too busy doing it to write about it. So uh, now that I'm retired, I get the opportunity to, to put it on, on paper. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this book, The Guilt Busters. Um, it, it, the first thing I want to want to talk about and ask you about is that you have put it into a uh, you know, a context of a a fictional book. It, it is a novel that you're writing about uh, stories of you know institutional child sexual abuse. It's not the the topic that most perhaps would say, "Oh, I'm going to write a novel. This is what I'm going to do." Uh, clearly, because of your journey, this is an important part of it. Why choose a fictional? account rather than perhaps go and share some stories of of people who I'm sure you've talked to and and counseled over the years. What was the reason for you to to choose the fictional idea? Uh, Recently, I heard the term Clayton uh, talking about genre, uh, factional. Ah, that's better. I like it. (laughs) And and I like that too. And I think think that is uh, what I've tried to do is to write uh, a factional book. And the reason the reason I love doing it like that, and my other book is uh, is an allegory, so it's a story too. Um, the reason I love doing that is that was the model Jesus used. He told stories. In fact, there were two things he did. He told stories and he asked questions. Uh, I learned that he asked 303 questions and he answered three of them. <laughs> and uh, so he had a particular model and it was about, 
It was about breaking through the resistance that people have to talk about certain things and think about certain things. So he told parables. So, so that's what I have done. And because it's a difficult subject to deal with, I thought if I wrote it as a textbook and people are going to get through page one and that'll be the end of it. So I built it around four characters uh, or, or actually five characters who four of whom were sexually abused and um, just followed their story, their, the impact it had on their lives and so on. Every, every fact in the book, every story is, is common to, th to millions of abuse survivors around the world. And so, so in that sense, it's true. It's just that, that, um, that the characters uh, have been made up. Uh, how, however, most of them reflect uh, either my own experience or experiences of people that I have met and interviewed along the way. The, the, there are places you'll recognise in the book, like St Kilda Gardens and, uh, and um, certain prisons and psychiatric hospitals and aged care homes. And, but, um, yes, uh, apart from that, it's, uh, the characters are fictional. Mm. Yep, I like that factional. I'm going to be using that one from now on. I, I really like that. Um, Graham, in terms of the idea of writing this and, and going to it, clearly, as you said, for many years now, you have said, all right, we, I will talk about this. I, I, I will uh, be involved in helping other people with it. But was it still a cost to write a book like this, to, to, to give of yourself again, to, to put it down in writing? Is there a cost that comes with that? Or is it perhaps a freedom by able to get that out? It, it was a strange experience, uh, Clayton. Uh, it was a cost in the sense that it was deeply emotional. And, uh, and whilst I have travelled other people's journeys, it was one of the first occasions that I had gone back and really examined my own experience. So in that sense, it was emotional. In fact, we've been... Uh, invited to a couple of book readings and I'm finding it very difficult to read it without, uh, without the tears coming to my eyes. Um, and, so, and I wrote it, so uh, I don't know how other people get on, but, but on the other hand, it was very, um, very, what would you say? Um, cathartic, very cathartic in the sense that um, I, I felt like I was not only leaving behind my own journey to some extent, putting it out there, but, but I was leaving behind thousands of hours of counselling that I, I can't share with anybody in the true sense. So I was able in this way to um, share the experience of sitting with, with people. Yeah, that's wonderful. The author of the book, The Guilt Busters, Graham Can, is my guest. We're going to be back with Graham in a couple of moments' time and we're going to be talking about um, some of the practical things that he's hoping people will take away from this factional book. We're going to talk about that next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and the author of the book, The Guilt Busters, Graham Can is with us. And this is a, a story. It's a factional book, as I've discovered this new word that Graham has brought to us today, uh, this idea of uh, using facts in a uh, fictional uh, story to actually tell a truth 
And uh, this is about the consequences of institutional child sexual abuse, the pathways to healing as well. And so that's what this book is about. As Graham shared, it's based on his story, uh, but also on so many others that he has spent time with and counseled over the years as well. Graham, I know that there's sort of four major themes that you're pulling out and using in this uh, story. Would you share those themes with us and maybe we can uh, dive into to one or two of them a bit more? Yes. One of the themes that runs right through the book is the impact of, um, of childhood sexual abuse on adults and young people. And uh, that comes right through the book, but, but there are sometimes stories that illustrate that impact that on family life, on their capacity to build relationships and so on. Uh, a second theme is the theme of um, projected guilt, which we talked about before. The, the, uh, the, the way in which people can confront the reality that the shame that they have carried all their lives can be resolved. The third area is the, the power of negative emotion in people's lives. How, how when, we, um, when we internalize painful emotions, that impacts our behaviors and, and the way we, uh, we filter data that we hear uh, just changes our whole perspective. And the fourth one, of course, is um, exploring the whole area of forgiveness, what it means, what self-forgiveness is, what it means to forgive someone who, uh, we've, uh, who, who we've blamed for everything that's gone wrong in our lives. So, so they're the major things. Like. Yeah. In terms of that first theme, if I, I could ask a couple of questions around that, the fact that it will impact us as we go on. Is there, is there some common traits that seem to occur is it as you said that relationships seem to be hard is it that each person who's abused as a child it's going to play out different ways and we have to be open and understanding those around that person and also the person themselves that it, it could come out certain ways I'm, i suppose i'm asking that question yes. are, are there common areas or or is it all individual oh there are some common areas but you're right that each person is an individual and they'll respond in their own particular way. But the, the common areas are that what you've got to understand is that the sort of abuse I'm talking about in the book is occurred when, when the survivor was maybe 12 years old or um, around about that age. So there was, first of all, a drastic behavior change in, in these people. Um, some children will withdraw and become uh, insular, uh, will cut themselves off from other people. Others become angry and aggressive. So there's a anger is being worked out in two different ways, one through aggression and one through withdrawal. Uh, sometimes it, it becomes the beginning point for psychiatric issues. Um, uh, Childhood schizophrenia is not uncommon uh, amongst people who have been sexually abused. Um, personality, uh, borderline personality disorders are not uncommon. And so this is the point at which these behaviours are first uh, rooted and then soon they're noticed. And so that's a pattern. Um, the other things that we notice um, and, and I notice in my own journey and other people's journey is that 
um, the whole issue of sexuality becomes um, confused. Um, instead of something to be enjoyed, it's something that uh, that is to be um, to almost to be feared. Uh, there's an anxiety about who we are, and, and then there is the, this sense of um, distrust that's built because usually. Um, survivors are very carefully, very patiently uh, groomed for the event. And so what happens is that before the event takes place, the child has developed trust and even love for the, the person. And that person has positioned themselves between the family and the child. And they have played on family weakness, any weakness they can find in the relationship between the child and the parent they have they have used that to build their own sense of um, acceptance with the child and uh, they and and then the abuse occurs and then the rejection and the blame occurs and so there's this confusion about relationships yeah I'll often ask in an interview such as this, where we're talking about a, a topic, which area seems to be affected most in life? And I tend to categorize them in you know, four or so areas of physical or spiritual, emotional, mental, those sorts of things. It does seem like that for a child who's been sexually abused, that all four, are maybe not equally, but they're absolutely fundamentally shook to the core. Is that a fair statement or am I again, reading something slightly wrong. No, that, that's fair. Um, I've lost count of the people who've said to me, you know, when I was being abused, I was calling out to God to come and save me and he didn't come. And, and some of those people still see God as someone who, who didn't intervene in their situation. And so that creates the spiritual issues for them. So certainly spiritual areas... Um, psychological areas, relational areas, and physical health areas are all very much impacted by childhood sexual abuse. And one of my purposes in the book is to try to get people who've never experienced this to read it and, and start to understand. Um, one of the common things that come through the stories I tell in the book are um, uh, children whose behaviours suddenly change and nobody understands that behaviour. And finally, some of them uh, disassociate themselves from their family altogether because they feel judged and, um, and misunderstood. So it's very complex and it's really important that society understands it. It's still happening all over the world, still happening in Australia. It's still happening in institutions, but 90% of sexual abuse is happening in the homes. Um, so, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why it's possible to believe that it could even grow worse uh, in, the, in society as we see some of the ways in which um, society is changing. Yeah. How do you answer that question, Graham? then of what do we do to stop this? Is there a possible way to stop this or, you know, have less incidences of people being sexually abused? As you talk about those statistics, they're the statistics that I, I'm hearing and I'm reading as well. Is there possibly a way that this stops? 
Institutions have done a fair bit of work on this, particularly since the Royal Commission. And um, this book is written in the shadow of the Royal Commission, and I draw on that a little bit. There is, um, there has been some very, very good steps taken. And one of those, and the churches are doing it as well, um, the church, uh, institutional church, and that is the much more careful vetting of people who work with children, um, police checks, etc. much more accountability, um, much better policies set up by the institutions in regards to, to uh, how adults spend their time with children and what sort of supervision is occurring at the same time. So, yes, there, there is some real movement there. But where there isn't so much is uh, in the extended family, step family, um, uh, uh, various models of family life. Some of those models have less accountability than, than the, the nuclear family that was connected to grandparents and uncles and aunts and churches and scouting groups and so on, there was more accountability of how parents acted than there is perhaps uh, in some aspects today as well. Is the fundamental change then that is required uh, some sort of a heart change? Is this where I feel like it's too basic to say, oh, we, we need a spiritual change inside people's lives to... To, to fix everything. I, I'm not trying to just imply there's a, 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 you know, click your fingers and away it goes. What is, you know, if Graham can have the, the magic wand to be able to wave and, and change what was happening in the, the hearts of people or, or what was occurring in people so that sexual abuse wasn't occurring in institutions or in homes, what would it be the thing that you would change about what people are or the way they're processing? I, I think... I think this, I'll come to the spiritual bit in a minute because I think that's really important. But I think what needs to change is that we see children as vulnerable human beings who are going to learn a great deal from their childhood experience. They will be shaped into the sort of adults they become in, in very early years in their life. And so their experience of relationship, their experience of love, their experience of trust, uh, the experiences around um, their sexuality, all those things are going to shape their lives in that first 12 or 14 years. And, and so what I would be uh, longing to see is an un a better understanding about that. It seems to me we put a lot of emphasis on a child's future is going to be impacted by the quality of their education. And I, that's fine. Nobody's going to argue with that. But that's only one piece of, of the story. The other piece of the story is that there has to be quality relationship between parent and child, and there has to be a higher regard in institutions and organisations around the care of children. And um, I think we've got to work really hard on that. Now, I think, I think we, there is a spiritual dynamic here, and, and that is that Jesus' teaching was uh, about children, was about loving and protecting children, 
and and seeing in the child the 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 demonstration of the kingdom of heaven that there was something beautiful about the trust the child has about the vulnerability of a child about the potential of a child that for jesus spoke of of what was most precious about the kingdom and uh, i think the more we can capture that uh, even in churches i think sometimes we forget that um, we're very excited about a baby being born, um, but often our structures in churches, our, our patterns of ministry um, are, uh, are not geared to the, the speed with which a child develops emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and relationally, and we're not contributing enough to that. So, so that's what I, I think, and I think... Uh, it comes back to to the fact that we um, we've as a as a society we basically turned our back on 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 God as the source of life and health, and, uh, and that's being reflected in so many areas of of relationship uh, for children and also in the whole domestic violence area as well. Yeah. The author of the book, The Guilt Busters, Graeme Can is my guest here on 89.9 The Light. We're going to be back in a moment to ask Graeme one big final question. He mentioned a couple of minutes ago this idea that uh, many children, even as they are being sexually abused, would call out for God. And uh, they say, he, he, he didn't rescue me, he didn't save me. And that sometimes shapes the rest of their world. What does Graeme say? in those instances as he's counseled, as he's shared those thoughts. And I think it's a, a question that maybe whether you're somebody who is a, a believer and uh, someone who has a strong faith in God or someone who doesn't, it's a, it's a question we all want to ask and have some answers for. What does Graham say in those situations? That's what we'll be asking him next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and the author of the book, The Guilt Busters, Graham Can is my guest. This is a factional book, as we've learnt today, uh, using uh, real facts uh, and putting it into a fictional context for a book to talk about some serious issues. And uh, the issues around The Guilt Busters is the institutional uh, child sexual abuse, uh, the consequences of that, and also the pathways to healing Graham shared a bit of his story and what he has gone through as a, a child and also has spent now many decades working with others who have gone through similar uh, sexual abuse as children as well. Graham, we, we talked about it a, a few moments ago. I wanted to pose that question to you. You said that there's a number of people who, as they're being sexually abused, will call out to God and will say, well, God didn't rescue me. That didn't happen. And they're understanding of God and the understanding of life perhaps might be changed forever because of that incident and, and that God didn't rescue them in that moment. What do you say uh, as you, you have conversations with people who are, are saying something that seems incredibly fair to say and to talk through? I, I guess I tried to put it into, um, into a specific context because when they say that, they, they, can go on just as easily and often do to say things like, I told my parents and they didn't believe me, or I reported it to the principal, but he didn't do anything about it. Or um, we went to the police and the police said there wasn't enough evidence to act. You know what I mean? Um, or in the church, it, it, often the, 
it never went higher than the abuser themselves. And so, so there's this whole sense that everybody has, has let me down. Everybody, God, parents, teachers, police, uh, and so on. And, and that's why one of the issues recently about, um, about uh, survivors being believed by a court became really important because survivors were saying, well, every, every other level of, my, of, of authority in my life has failed me. Uh, in, and if the legal system decides they're not going to listen to me, then they've failed me as well. And uh, so that was a big issue. So I put it in that context of uh, get them to tell me their, their whole story so that we don't just focus on the God issue, but the whole, um, the whole issue of uh, refusal to deal with their pain. The second thing that I, I, I do is that I lead them into understanding the difference between the event and their response to the event. So the event is definitely somebody else's fault. Uh, the blame should rest with the perpetrator, but because they've taken responsibility for the event themselves, many survivors feel that therefore um, they're, they've been abandoned and they're alone. But when they, when they are prepared to move that blame to where it really belongs back onto the perpetrator and they accept the fact that that they are only responsible for their responses to the event then then that opens up that whole discussion of okay now that we're taking responsibility for that let's have a look at the parent thing again and the school thing again and the, the institutional thing again and the god thing again and and see if we can understand that in a different way it, it does seem to be an aspect of one of the other themes that came up in, in what you said earlier about that experiencing forgiveness. How, how does that fit into that uh, play out of, of re-looking at all of what it occurred and, and the way it occurred? One of the very, very important uh, aspects of, of the healing journey is to achieve self-forgiveness. And uh, because, uh, you know, one of the characters in the book says, uh, every time I look in the mirror, I see, I see a, um, a guilty person. And so he's lived with this for 30, uh, till he's 36 years of age, he is still struggling with this reality. And um, so when, when they come to a place where they can actually forgive themselves, then, then that, that enables them to start to think more objectively about the, the rest of the healing that needs to take place. And there are two ways of doing that. If a person's resistant to the idea that God loves, loves them and they can love themselves in the same way that God loves them, and many people are resistant to that because of their experience, life experience so if, if that's the case I encourage them to think about the people that they've hurt because they have been angry or withdrawn or whatever and challenge them to go to that person and ask the person to forgive them 
And in most cases, in almost every case, family who love them are just so eager to say, of course, we forgive you. We, we understand where you're coming from and we forgive you for that, that uh, your behaviours and your actions. We were hurt by them, but we forgive you. When they come back out of that experience, they say to me, they often say to me, Graham, I now know what forgiveness is. I now know what it's like to be forgiven by somebody else. And that opens the door both to talking about God's forgiveness and also talking about forgiving themselves. So this is really an important aspect of forgiveness is forgiving ourselves. The second, can I just keep talking on? Is that okay? Or you want to ask another no, question? Absolutely, you go for it. <laughs> uh, the, the second aspect of that is that um, when I do shift the blame to where it belongs, what that releases in, in me is anger. Because the, the, the false guilt has been used to cover up the pain. But when, when I get rid of the false guilt, I, I find I've got this red-hot anger that I, I have to deal with. So the question is, how do I deal with that? Well, maybe if I could get revenge in some personal way, that might help. Maybe if the person went to jail for a very long time, that might help. But the reality is that we all know there is no punishment that we could devise or that can be devised by the law that is going to be sufficient for what they've done to us. And so... So we have to find something different. If it's not going to come through justice and it's not going, if we're not going to be freed from anger by justice and not freed from anger by revenge, then how do we do it? And it's there that we begin to explore the fact that God has offered us a, a way in which we can deal with the impossible situations that these present by paying the penalty themselves. So when we forgive another person, it is on the, not on the basis that they deserve it, but on the basis that Jesus died for their sin and that he has paid the price. And that forgiveness is not primarily for the, the perpetrator, but it's primarily to set us free. Yeah. It's like we've been in a prison uh, of shame and anger and all the time we have thought that the perpetrator has had the key, uh, but we've had it. And that key is both self-forgiveness and, and, and forgiveness. Yeah. Final question, Graham. Uh, from your perspective, as you've written this book now, what do you hope to achieve from it? Is it for those mostly who have been through it and to give them a path forward and to give them comfort that there's others who have been through that and are standing with them? Is it to those who have never been through it and you're trying to, to encourage and open people's eyes to what's occurring, maybe a bit of both? What, what, what was your intent? And I suppose, what, what are you hoping as people read this book? To Good. The best way of answering that question, I think, Clayton, is to just tell you briefly about the different types of feedback that we're getting from the book. And one is from people who've never been abused and who are pastors or teachers or, or people working in institutions who have um, responded by, by saying it was very helpful in understanding the dynamics of grooming, understanding the impact of the abuse, the behaviour patterns of abused people and so on, and also, of course, the therapeutic journey forward. 
So there's been that sort of feedback back. There's been feedback from adults who themselves experienced abuse. And um, some of them have commented on how it is, um, it, it has helped them just to read a description of their journey uh, and to see in the stories that I tell uh, themselves to a, a large extent and, um, and also to, to know they're not alone in this journey and that there are ways forward. So there's been some very, very good feedback around that. And then there's been families of people who've been abused. And there's one lady has bought eight books for her family because uh, several members of her family were abused as children by the one abuser. And uh, so she has bought the book for all these adult children and for some of the adult grandchildren as well. So there's this sense of at last there's something that I can put in the hands of the people I love who've been abused and might give them some hope. Well, Graeme, we thank you for writing it again. We thank you for speaking with us again. And we certainly do hope uh, that there is uh, much help for many people as they read this book once more. Thanks again for your time, Graeme. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. And uh, bless you. Graeme Can, the author of the book, The Guilt Busters, here on 89.9 The Light.